You're listening to Well Made, a podcast from Lumi about the future of e-commerce. I'm your host, Stefan Ango. Maria Thomas, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. You just said a second ago before we started recording, you're 100% Greek. What <laughs> Hiding behind the Maria Thomas yes. name. How did that happen? Uh, shortened name from what would have been Tomadakis in, in oh, English. Oh, interesting. Yeah. When did that change happen? That happened in my father's time, uh, actually not by him, but by his brother. Oh, really? Yeah. That's fascinating. So that was before you were born? That oh, was yeah, like, well before I was born. Yeah, that's interesting. So, so let's just start and looking at your biography, it's just such an incredible wealth of different companies and uh, positions and industries that you've worked in. When you describe what you do and, and your background, where do you start? I usually start by saying I'm a business person, by education, by experience, and maybe most importantly, sort of by DNA. Mm. I love business. I think of business as my sport. I very much enjoy trying to make them tick as an operator and then as a student of business, trying to understand lessons and case studies. So I usually start by saying I'm a business person, but that has been applied, as you mentioned, in many different environments, larger companies, smaller companies private, public, for-profit, non-for-profit. So you've been in the tech industry, and I know that you've, just to give people an idea, you've been at Amazon, at Etsy, at SmartThings. Lately, you've been uh, working with at the board of a few different companies, Control yes. for, um What's the other one I'm Spoon forgetting? Spoonflower. Spoonflower. And then McClatchy, which is a media company. And and But where did it all start for you? How did you get involved in the tech industry? What was the yeah. first thing? Well, I got involved in the late 90s, and I was working at the time for uh, an arm of the World Bank, wow. of all things. So I'd started my career in finance, and I was working in Washington uh, at this place called the IFC, International Finance Corporation. And just out of personal interest, I had gotten very, um, I guess, you know, uh, enraptured with what was happening at the time with eBay and Amazon and all of those early uh, commercial internet companies. Right. And I was really originally kind of interested in how they were going public. How was it possible that a two-year-old company that nobody really understood the business model of was raising money in the public market? And that's how the door through which I came. But um, once I started studying, particularly Amazon, I I just became fascinated. Really, it it captured my attention. I became convinced that it was going to change the world. And so Mm. I basically raised my hand at a time when Amazon was starting to grow rapidly and said, I'd like to work for you. And they said, come on out to Seattle. And this was the late 90s. This was right around the time of the big web uh, 1.0 bubble. Yes, it was definitely, it wasn't quite the height of the bubble. It was on the way up. Yeah. So I had the experience during my almost three years at Amazon of going uh, all the way up to the top of the bubble, experiencing the bubble bursting and then coming back down. I mean, give some context for people because I think there's there's a lot of people who are listening to us who just were were kids at that time, didn't yeah. have a chance to really understand what that was like. Yeah, it was a first of all, it was a, a thrilling and exciting time. I mean, I really remember it vividly, although mm. uh, it's coming up on on twenty years almost. I remember it because I was coming from such a different environment. I was mm. coming from a, a, a large multilateral institution based in Washington that was financing projects all over the world. And it was kind of a formal environment and very clear rules of engagement. And I got to Amazon. I remember thinking, 
there are no rules. There, you know, it's it's all about just trying to figure it out. Uh, and I found that thrilling. I think I was around. I don't remember precisely what employee number I was. The company was already a public company, so it wasn't wow. it wasn't okay. tiny yeah. when I got there. Uh, it was almost four years in. Um, I think I was somewhere in the in the fifteen hundred ish range. And when I arrived, it was books, music, and video only. Mm. And uh, I worked on the team that was helping to build out consumer electronics. And that was kind of a, a big deal at the time, even sure. though it seems like a, another category expansion wouldn't have been that big of a deal. But actually, back at that time, Amazon wasn't nearly as sophisticated with warehousing, logistics, and that side of the business. So the big uh, challenge for consumer electronics was uh, trying to create the, among the challenges, was trying to create the processes by which we could receive inventory that was not as homogeneous mm. in shape and size sure. as books, music, and video are. Right. I mean, at that time, people were starting to probably get into like LCD TVs and that, that kind of stuff. Yeah, uh, you're exactly right. It's a right. whole different category of thing that you have to ship. Another big category, which I worked on a lot, was um, uh, digital cameras, digital uh, videography. And so that was just around the time, around year 2000, when you know mass consumers were shifting from film to digital. And so it was a big thing for Amazon to try to figure out you know, which brands, which, which products, uh, not only how to receive and warehouse them, but how to explain it to the consumer. And also, I think it's worth reminding people that at that time, people didn't just put their credit card into a website willy-nilly and, and <laughs> you know, spending thousands of dollars on a piece of electronics was a little bit more of a, of a barrier than it is today. Absolutely. In fact, um, in some, sometimes when I'm giving a talk that has slides, I will capture a screenshot from the Wayback Machine of around the time that I started at Amazon. And right on the homepage, it said, there's language that actually says something to the effect of uh, Amazon.com is safe. You know, mm-hmm. Don't worry about putting your credit card online. And so even in 1999, Amazon felt as as though it had to have that language on the website. And I, I often use that example as something to remind people that when you're trying to introduce a new product to the market or trying to change consumer behavior, it's hard. And you, right. you can't underestimate how long it takes or uh, how powerful uh, a barrier fear can be. I also use it on the flip side to say uh-huh. something positive, which is, you know, it took however long it took for people to trust putting their credit card online. And now we just put our credit cards everywhere and right. think of it as nothing. We just store the information yeah. and we're so far past that hurdle that we get irritated if we can't do it easily. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the opposite becomes true when you have you know, big leaks of data and all that kind of stuff that occur, it, it, you know, maybe that, <laughs> that, that could be a dangerous thing. But um, at the time, so Amazon survived the bubble. I mean, it went through a big dip in terms of its like stock price and everything. But uh, were there things that you can remember about the culture of Amazon or, the, or was it the business model or something that allowed it to survive through that, that period of time? And can you describe for people what, what happened? What was the bubble? What? Yeah. Well, the, the, the bubble was that uh, the stock market had, uh, broadly speaking, become overheated. And in, within the tech sector in particular, and with a lot of consumer internet companies, um, companies had gotten overvalued. And basically, you know, there was a flight to quality, to use a 
term, a phrase mm-hmm. of art in finance, flight to quality means people exit from things they perceive to be risky and all of a sudden, you know, what was sexy is deemed to be risky. And so there was a crashing down. I think with Amazon, you know, the company survived for, for several reasons. I mean, financially it survived because it was already a public company. It had raised capital um, both in the primary IPO and then secondarily. And so the, they had cash in the bank. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't as though, you know, they needed to raise another round of venture capital and all of a sudden the venture capital was drying up. So the company had cash in the bank. It was already, you know, even though we're talking about a a lot of the risks and how it was early days, I mean, the fact is people were shopping on Amazon, and so there was was incoming revenue as well. Um, I think so beyond the finance uh, aspects of the company and why it survived, I think another big reason is that Jeff Bezos, as a founder and leader, had from the very beginning, uh, even you know during the the run up to the bubble, was always very clear uh, mm. about what what he thought Amazon was or what it was that he had set out to build. Um, and I remember all hands meetings uh, as they got larger and larger that he was very much always talking about the same things that he talks about today. Mm-hmm. Long-term thinking, don't be, you know, to the employees, uh, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but essentially don't get consumed with the stock price fluctuations from one day to the next or one month to the next, that what we were building was something for the long term. And even today, he still talks about the importance of long-term thinking, the importance of being misunderstood. And he was talking about all of that, you know, 20 years ago, which is remarkable. Were there things that you can remember about the way that the the structure of of the company itself, like enabled your group to thrive? Because that's something that I think a lot of companies struggle with once you reach a certain size, how do you enable, you know, they're trying to do something pretty radical, which is how do we sell electronics online? What was that like? What was the building that? Yeah. um, Like, I think first I'll just caveat and say I know the company is so totally different today right. that uh, whoever might be listening to this that remembers early stories might uh, have other memories too. But the the things that I remember were that consumer electronics was an important vertical to get right because – like I said before, it was the first non-media vertical. Um, And so there were lots of points of differentiation. At the same time, though, there were lessons that had been learned from the three stores that already existed, books, music, and video. And so in some respects, there was a little bit of a playbook for it. Um, Mm -hmm. And and there was a a customer database. And so we had the ability even then to do email marketing and like the early forms of digital marketing. Um, But what I remember distinctly, and I think this isn't true at Amazon today, is uh, Amazon had centralized both design and engineering. And so uh, I was on the product side at the time and we sort of owned product which included not just the the user experience of the store, but also all of the assortment and developing the relationships with the vendors, um, and then marketing. Who were we, who were we going after in this store, and how were we going to talk to them? And then we relied on these centralized resources for uh, design and development. And and that worked at the time. I mean, I don't know for how long that worked after the launch of consumer electronics, uh, because things started to grow quickly after that, and mm-hmm. stores started to spin out um, fairly quickly after that. But um, I think Amazon uh, may have taken some of that early org 
structure from Microsoft of all places. Interesting. Uh, there was a time at Neighbors. Amazon. Yeah, there was a time at Amazon when Amazon was hiring a lot of people from Microsoft, and right. so the, some of those early titles came over, like program manager, um, and and things like that. So what? This made you decide to leave Amazon. It seemed like one of the most exciting times <laughs> to be there. It was, and I, I really enjoyed Seattle. I had never lived on the West Coast before that, and I was enjoying myself. Um, really, I, I left only because I got a, an opportunity that I thought I couldn't say no to and didn't mm-hmm. want to say no to, and that was to lead the digital effort at NPR uh, back in Washington, D.C., against all odds. NPR had been it played an important role in my uh, life sort of during college and post-college. And I, I looked at it as um, a national treasure of sorts. Yeah. And I thought that at the time it was late 2001 and I kind of looked at what was going on for public radio online and it was really not very good. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought it deserved so much more. And I thought it was a, a great opportunity really. I mean, from a professional and career perspective, uh, it was an opportunity to take this big, beloved brand and try to figure out what it means to have radio on the internet. I mean, you yeah. have to think back. This was <laughs> before right. mobile, before social. It wasn't really even broadband I mass mean, penetration at YouTube, that time. YouTube, I'm trying yeah, to think of like, like what kind of audio it was, was like on the internet was, at that time even. It was uh, real networks. Yep. Like The streaming it, Technology was just so primitive at the time. It was very primitive. And, you know, uh, I don't remember precisely when broadband penetration in America hit, you know, absolute uh, peak. But I don't think it was 2001. So NPR was very early into archiving audio online, even though a lot of people actually couldn't really access it. Yeah. Um, And then, you know, the what came later of course is that now NPR benefits from the fact that it's um the entire archive is, is online. it's online yeah. well not the entire archive but going back to about the mid to late 90s it's online when i joined i was really interested in the history of NPR and how it came into being but i was also interested in the fact that throughout its life, really almost from the beginning, it had taken seriously, in part because it was publicly mandated to do so, Mm. but it had taken seriously creating an archive. And they were mostly transcripts that were done the old-fashioned way of sending out the audio, and then a week later, you know, you get back a perfect transcript. But uh, because of that, they had uh, librarians on staff. And that turned out to be really helpful to Mm. my team because there were people who had worked for NPR for a long time who understood data Mm. structures and who understood taxonomies. That became uh, really probably one of the biggest and most important contributions, Mm. I think, from my team at the time was to really think through not only what was the product going to be, that was also a big one, but also how are we going to organize it? Mm. Because on radio, the radio producers, not the audience, but the radio producers associate with shows. And so I would say show is the product. Um, But in digital formats, really story is more Mm -hmm. important than show. Uh, And so we really got into this mode of thinking about, from a digital architecture perspective, story as the atom with the metadata around the story. Right which then led to the creation of products in the online world that didn't exist on radio. Mm. So imagine like, as an example, um, you have a, uh, somebody reviewing a book on NPR. Well, 
that's part of a show, you know, fresh air, whatever. But in the online world, we can break that out to the singular book review as the story and then put the data around it. Who's the author? What show was it on? What's the topic of the book, the genre, whatever. Uh, And then we can create a podcast that's, you you only want to hear the book reviews from NPR? Okay, here it is, all in one. Um, And so the, the, the data structure actually was an enabler of product development in a way. And the fact that there were people in the building who had a history of thinking like that was very helpful. Yeah, I mean, that's what I was talking about when I was thinking of the concept of playlists. Um, I think the, the show that I was listening to a lot at the time was All Things Considered, and that one was always broken up into all its separate segments and stories and you know, if you wanted to like snack on various things or look, listen back to the past five days of archives, but just pick out the stories that you wanted to hear, that's way more powerful than just blocks of 45 minutes. Exactly. Content. Exactly. And, um, you know, we ended up creating a lot of trying, not everything worked, but we ended up trying a lot of different, you know, snacks, as you call them, uh, including one of the more popular things was. People always wanted to know what the music was between mm. the segments on a show like right. All Things Considered. And so people would always write in and ask, what was that song, et cetera. And that was actually the genesis of something mm. called All Songs Considered, which is part of NPR Music now. Um, it's a very popular online-only, digital-only. It's a podcast now. It's a program you can listen to streaming online. And the guy who, who made that, Bob Boylan, has gone on to do many wonderful things within NPR Music. Well, so taxonomy makes me think of Etsy, which was your next big gig, right? Yeah. Uh, which is, I mean, that is one of the probably biggest taxonomy problems that anyone could ever have to solve, right? Yeah, you're it, not kidding. That uh, <laughs> trying to organize, you know, everything handmade. Yes. Uh, tell me about joining Etsy at that time. What was that like? That was the early early days of Etsy. It was. Uh, by the way, before I get into how I joined, the the one person I brought from NPR to Etsy was in fact, uh, a librarian. Okay. Makes sense. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I, I, I would love, I, I think, uh, I could talk all day about taxonomy. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. makes a lot of yeah. sense to me. Um, but you're right uh, to point that out because both are very long tail environments of, uh, a lot of different types of content in the case of NPR and, and items in the case of Etsy, it was a little bit easier at NPR in that we did develop a structure, mm-hmm. um, so I joined Etsy uh, in early 08. The company was two and a half years old at the time. There were three founders at Etsy, um, two technologists and one kind of idea slash designer. And uh, I originally joined actually a COO of the company. And I was only there for a few weeks when uh, the founder, uh, the designer founder, um, who had been CEO, asked if if I wanted to be CEO. And looking back on it, you know, we sort of took it um, somewhat informally, but we were both on the board at the time, and it seemed like a good idea because he was more interested in being uh, on the product and design side, and I enjoyed all the other aspects of running the business. So we did, the, we made the switch, and I became CEO. The business model was as it is today, so it was a good idea from the get-go, and what was needed was less about uh, inventing around the business model and more about... I would say at the time, a few big things. Uh, one, the technical platform was not stable. Mm. Um, we were having a lot of problems in that uh, th- through the first half of 2008 and really into almost the end of 2008. 
uh, a lot of stability problems, a lot of downtime outages, you know, things that are highly unacceptable when you're running a platform hosting right. other people's businesses. So there were a lot of efforts uh, to be uh, put into really getting the right team and a uh, place to, to stabilize the platform and to um, set in place a foundation that we could build upon. Another big one was um, clarifying the brand. Mm-hmm. Um, I, when I arrived, there were probably, you know, roughly 60, 65 people in the company. I sat down with each person and talked to them for a little while. And at the end of all of that, I realized there were almost three different visions of what the company was all about, hmm. ranging from it's all about the artisans and the craftspeople and celebrating art and, uh, uh, craft. That was for some people. Others thought men know this is all about women, um, empowerment of women and, uh, really trying to give women a platform for making a living. And then a third one was a little broader of like independent production, right? Mm. Sort of stick it to the man type of stuff. And so I really wanted to try to work through, the clarification of the brand and get sort of the language of the brand that we could all align around internally. This wasn't for external consumption. Um, we spent a lot of time on that, and I think that was helpful at the time to really put that in place so that when we were presenting Etsy um, to the world, that it was a, a more consistent experience. So that was another another big bucket. And then there was finance bucket. I mean, company had raised money, and it wasn't in need of raising more money at the time, um, but of course, you'll remember the second crash mm-hmm. <laughs> happened in 2000, sure. uh, 2008. Uh, and that was scary. I mean, um, that was not just the tech industry. That was everyone. That was yeah. much broader, of course, yeah. because it was it was stimulated by the housing uh, industry and the, the you know, uh, collapse of Lehman Brothers and all of that. And so there's a famous presentation that had been circulated by um, the venture capital firm Sequoia mm-hmm. at the time that basically said, uh, you know, RIP good days or something. <laughs> Wasn't it something like yeah, that? Exactly, yeah, exactly. Exactly. It was like, yeah, it, it was like hoard your cash. Right. Um, you're not going to be able to raise capital for a long time. So like figure it out. Right. Uh, Etsy fortunately had cash, but we weren't profitable at the time. And so yeah. uh, from that point and through 2009, I really worked hard to try to make the company profitable so that we wouldn't have to raise more money. And we did become profitable in 2009. After I left in 10, the company chose to raise more money after that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but during that time, I was really working and trying to focus on getting the company profitable with what we had. But I think the the business, and this is just purely from the outside, but the business model of Etsy seems like it would be a little bit stronger, more resilient during a recession because it's like trying to empower more of a bottom-up. People need to make money during that period it's of time. It's a great observation that you've made. It's a great observation, and it is a little bit counter-cyclical. You're right. Um, so it, it, it was a great time for sellers right. who or makers who might not have otherwise taken the time to think about a platform like Etsy to think about it. Um, I think it was also a good time to talk about the importance of meaningful human mm-hmm. connection. You right. know, this is a time of disillusionment, a time of big not working. Yeah. And that's still part of Etsy's message, but I think it was uh, a good time to emphasize, you know, buy things from real people making things and have a more personal, more meaningful shopping experience. 
It sounds like you had a lot on your plate in terms of operationally keeping the website up, getting the finances in, in a good place. But was there anything you were able to bring over from NPR or Amazon in terms of whether it's product development or anything else that, that you felt like got infused into Etsy during that time? Um, yes. I think uh, from from Amazon, one of the things that I took away that's pretty tactical, but um, you know, what's remarkable for Amazon is that right from the get-go, the Amazon had instrumented the site mm-hmm. for metrics gathering. And that's interesting. Even yeah. right from the get-go, I mean, if you look even at the URL structures of the early days, they were all meta-tagged, every single piece of the site. And we looked at that information daily, hourly, whatever. And all of that was in a data warehouse that at the time, I, I, I remember being able to access it as an employee from the intranet. Mm-hmm. And of course, nothing like that existed at Etsy. It was almost the polar opposite. Um, Etsy had chosen to build originally on a Postgres database. And I think there was one Postgres data guy who was on the West Coast and the company was in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, and so anytime you wanted to you know, get a query or extract data as a non-technical person, it was like, where's CB? Right. <laughs> CB, by the way, if you're listening, thank you for staying at Etsy all these years. Um, so you know, one of the things I took away from Amazon was the importance of being able to um, instrument the site and uh, set up a structure for um, mm-hmm. access to data. That actually took well beyond the time that I was leading the company. Um, but it did happen. And I think today that's actually probably a strength for Etsy. Mm. What I was able to do is I think instill into the early culture you know, that focus on e-commerce being such a patterned business and the importance of you know looking at those patterns and understanding them and what they mean for the business and so i think i brought a, a really uh, important you know i, I shown a, a very important spotlight on that i feel like that's something that every young business needs to hear somehow at some point because you're only going to improve what you can measure is that something that i know that today you're you're helping all kinds of businesses and startups uh that must be something that you come back to quite a lot. Absolutely. Um, I think that, you know, it's a different world today. And, and certainly startups that are founded by technical founders or technologists will maybe, you know, this will come a little bit more naturally. Mm. Um, and there's so many, you know, easy plug-in layers to, to use to instrument the site. You don't have to do it all by hand. But, but I think sometimes it's hard to know. Uh, what to measure, what your like KPI or what, right. what is the thing that, uh, you know, some obvious ones are often time, times just like number of users or revenue. But I find that often businesses that are really functioning choose something that is very unique to the way that they operate. Like I think for Airbnb, it's like number of nights booked per user or something yeah. like that. That was really what they wanted to, to measure. Or maybe for YouTube, it's like how many hours of streaming per user or something yes. like that. We're, finding the right thing and kind of like deciding on it can be kind of challenging. Yeah, it's another great observation you're making. Uh, so my point was that the tools are a lot easier and more plentiful. Right. But that doesn't change the fact that it's still hard and and really important to... Uh, I think for any early management team to really think through what what is the the key driver or drivers of the business and how do we think about that? How do we measure it? Mm-hmm. And also the difference between a KPI and a goal, right? <laughs> right. Well, explain that a little bit for people. Um, 
Well, the, the, you know, just quick definitionally, the KPI is the measurement of the outcome that you're trying to achieve. Key performance indicator. Yeah, right. yeah, key performance indicator, sorry. And, you know, getting to the number is not the goal. The goal is something that's usually more qualitative, perhaps more long-term. Mm-hmm. But we don't want to, you know, it's important, I think, to have a narrative of where it is that you're trying to get to over a period of time and articulate that. But as generally, a, what are you trying to do? What's the philosophical direction? And and then how you how do you measure that in, in, in number terms? Is that what you're saying? Yes, that's, yeah. a, that's thank you for, for translating. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> thank you for translating. Um, how do you convert like a philosophy into a metric that can be measured? Because like a, a philosophy or an idea that you have as a business is not necessarily obvious as, no. a, measure, as a metric. No, no, no. It's not. I, I don't. Th- you're correct. I mean, I don't. I don't think that it's the philosophy so much that needs to be quantified. Mm. I think having a philosophy, which you might say, is codified in values, is very important. Mm. You know, the kind of organization that you want to be, the interactions and behaviors that you value or don't value. That's really important. But um, more from you know the drivers of your business and what are the outcomes. So use Etsy, for example. You know, we, we really just dissected what's driving the business. And knowing that for us at the time, there were a couple of important goals. One of them was to drive the top line, and that's measured by gross merchandise sales. Mm-hmm. Right, Because of the stage of the business, it was important to really grow that top line. And gross merchandise sales is a function not just of the number of actual sales, but we want to break down a little bit further and say, okay, uh, how many customers do we have in a month? Does one customer only buy one time in a month or do we have one customer buying multiple times in a month? So it's it's frequency of sale. It's the average cart size. It's the number of customers that you have. And all of those are components of that of that GMS number. Well, and with, with Etsy in particular, you have a marketplace. So you have two customers sort of. You have to make the merchants happy, the people who are selling their products on the platform, and then you have to make the buyers happy. So that that metric tries to sort of accommodate both of those things because in theory, if the if the GMS or GMV or right. this big number is increasing, in, in theory, it's increasing for both. That's that's right. And, and in that particular case, GMS, gross merchandise sales, GMV, gross merchandise value, often used interchangeably. In that particular case, that's an important you know, for both sides of the marketplace, right? Mm-hmm. In general, you could say more GMS uh, means sellers are selling more, so that's good, um, and it's good for the company because buyers are buying more. But of course, on the seller side, I mean, there's a whole other set of metrics too that that mm-hmm. one would want to look at um, because that number in the aggregate is not nuanced enough to really give you a sort of good picture of what's going on with sellers overall. Um. So you were you were with American Express for a little bit after that? Yeah, that was very brief. Yeah. Um, it, it, yeah, that was a there was a French startup, a yeah. very famous French uh, in the French ecosystem. That's right. That's uh, right. That, that was trying to move to the U.S. So these guys, there were a handful of, of founders at Vent Privé, and they were basically doing this business in the offline world before they mm. brought it online. And so they were longtime merchants, longtime, really hardcore retail guys. Um, 
And the model, I think, works very well in France, hmm. uh, in part because, as you would probably know better than I, the retail environment there is very different than it is here. There are fewer big box national stores, hmm. and they also have, it's a little bit like it was here decades ago, where there's only sales at certain times. Yeah, and, there's only twice twice yeah, a year mandated yeah. uh, by the government uh, time when you can actually go on sale, which is interesting. Right. And so here in the United States, I mean, shopping is our sport, right? Everything's always on sale and um, we have all these off-price outlets like TJ Maxx and uh, Nordstrom Rack. So long story short, um, uh, Amex got uh, into a joint venture with Vent Privé. The idea was they were going to bring Vent Privé's model to the U.S. uh, and tap into the American Express database of people who are kind of higher net worth, people who might be interested in becoming members of Vent Privé. I was sort of intrigued by this idea, mainly because I really respect American Express as a company, mm-hmm. and I, I respect their, especially their marketing efforts. Um, and so I was kind of keen to learn more about it, uh, and they were trying to recruit me to be the CEO of that venture. But once I understood what was going on and sort of what the business was going to be and what Von Privé's model was... I wasn't interested in doing it full time. Did it become anything? Did they bring it to the yeah, States? Did it open up? They, uh, they did. So I, I, for six months, I helped them kind of move it out of being a, an idea and into being a reality and help hire people and get some of the initial arrangements in place for uh, a 3PL and, uh, and so forth. And they launched it in uh, late 2011. Hmm. Um, it lasted for three years and then they shut it down. What was it called? It was called Vent Privé USA. Oh, boy. Uh, That's probably not a great name. No, it wasn't a great name. And nobody could pronounce it. And, you know, Americans don't know that that even means private Mm. sale. There were a lot of issues. I think there's a lot of lessons for anybody listening who wants to take away lessons from that example. Uh, There are many. Just because you pioneer a model in one part of the world doesn't mean it's going to translate to another part of the world. And in fact, you know, there were many copycats at that time in the United States, not just guilt. I mean, it was Rue La La, Look, which was acquired by Nordstrom. Amazon had jumped into the game with My Habit. There were others, Ideally, which eventually got sold and I think shut down. And so there was a lot of competition Hmm. for the consumer and also a lot of competition for the merchandise to be put through that model. Another big lesson is if, you know, if you're going to get into a joint venture, don't make it 50-50 because, because, you know, then you're at a board where it's 50-50. Who makes a decision? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The incentives are not really aligned properly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I wonder, it's interesting because it seems like that business model hasn't really survived uh, to this day. I wonder why. I mean, Gilt became a really quite a large company for a while there. It did, and Gilt ultimately sold for $250 million to Hudson Bay Company, department store, uh, owner of of department stores, which, you know, when you look at it over the arc of its life, it's, it's a really interesting story because I think they sold for less than the total amount of venture capital that they raised. Mm. And certainly, you know, their star was less bright at the time they sold than it was at the height of popularity of that model. My, my, my feeling is that um, the model became popular because it was a little bit gimmicky at the time. It, had, it played on the scarcity right. um, and it played on this idea of membership. And maybe early on there was some uh, truth to the idea that there was merchandise that you would find at Gilt or Rue La La that you couldn't find elsewhere mm-hmm. and at a really good price. But the reality is, I think, in, in the United States, there's a lot of off-price channels already. I mentioned TJ Maxx and others. And so 
competing for that merchandise to buy specialized merchandise at an, at a good price that nobody else has, mm. it's just difficult. Uh, yeah. And that's why you saw Guilt, I think, expanding into multiple categories and trying to sell more things. I think Groupon was also big at that time and, and didn't exactly have the same proposition, but sort of in a, in the kind of event and physical space uh, world, like where you could go to a restaurant or do a thing. And I mean, they're still around, but I guess in the in the world of fashion, you have other problems too, which is inventory and, and cash flow, which is uh, quite yep. a big challenge. Your, your, your memory is uh, great on that because you're right. Not only was Groupon around, but also there was another competitor in that space called Living Social, oh, right. um, which ultimately got bought for, for pennies on the dollar by Groupon. But the reason that's interesting to bring up is because, you know, thinking about these things from a consumer perspective, you know, we're all in the startup world and we remember all these stories and all these companies. But if you're sort of an ordinary consumer uh, and you're not in this world, it's a lot of things to try to remember why you should be buying. Like, what's the difference between, uh, you know, an off-price fashion retailer and a company offering discounts in the consumer's head, it's sort of easy, even though they're different, it's kind of easy to get them blended by thinking of it all as, oh, this is where you get good deals. Right. <laughs> and that's why there was a time, I think, even when, if my memory serves correctly, I think Gilt was trying to do a deals business as well for mm. a time. Well, I mean, this was still kind of around the height of the the economy being, you know, in this downturn and, and slowly, you know, coming back up. And I think maybe there is something there in terms of uh, if anyone was going to buy anything that was like higher end, they were going to try and get a deal somehow. Uh, so maybe that was part of it as well. Yeah. Uh, you're, you're, uh, again, it's, it's good to remember what's happening uh, macroeconomically at any time. And we happen to be living now, mm. you know, through a, a pretty long period of robust uh, economics. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> um, so, okay, let's keep going. Smart things is the next big one, right? <laughs> Smart things. I mean, we're, we're, I haven't demoed this to you, but I, I've got all my lights are on like Philips Hue in here. So I oh, could like, nice. yeah. It's not exactly uh, smart things. Power, so if I but, say the keyword word, everything's going to turn purple pretty soon. Uh, yeah, don't <laughs> don't say the keyword. Um, no, but it's a uh, well for people who don't know smart things. It's a whole panoply now of like various uh, products that help you know smart. If I your house, uh, what are some of the products in in, in the Smart Things yeah. catalog? Well, just uh, briefly, what Smart Things is um, uh, both a product and a platform. Mm-hmm. So, from a product perspective, Smart Things makes um, a hub and then several sensors. Mm-hmm. But from a platform ex- perspective, Smart Things works with a variety of products from other manufacturers which aren't smart things. So I just said a whole bunch of things. Let me try to clarify because it's not easy to understand if you're not into it. But basically, when we talk about the smart home, the smart home is really different things to different people. Um, The big categories are energy management, um, you know, smart thermostats, and also sensors on different parts of your house. Another one would be safety and security. Uh, And then a third one might be like convenience and peace of mind. Mm -hmm. Um, Lighting can cut across all of those in one way or the other. So SmartThings was providing a a kind of a modular way for people to build whatever it is that they wanted to make smart in their homes. The one piece of the system that was required or is required is what's called a hub. Right now that exists as a standalone product, is a 
small plastic product that looks right. something like a router about the size of a, a, a CD case. It's like the brain of the system mm-hmm. and it houses different kinds of uh, low frequency radios that communicate with all of the other sensors in the house. And then the hub also communicates with the cloud where a lot of the processing is done. So from a consumer perspective, the idea would be, you know, control your home with the app that's on your phone. Right. And, um, so the company has been acquired, right, by yes. Samsung. So Correct. Since, since yeah. uh, you, that was after you you worked there, or was it during? Uh, no, all during. Yeah, oh, okay, yeah, okay. yeah. So I I joined a group of seven founders. Wow. One of whom I had known a little bit beforehand because he was living in Washington, and they started the company actually in the fall of 2012 on on Kickstarter, mm-hmm. and they ran a very successful Kickstarter campaign that ended up raising 1.2 million dollars. Wow. And on the back of that, they uh, raised a seed round right at the end of 2012, early 2013, and that's when I joined on the seed round. And I had the role of chief consumer officer, which meant I owned all of the marketing, go-to-market strategy, all of our e-commerce strategy. How are we going to not only fulfill on the Kickstarter campaign, but actually get this product in the market? Uh, how are we going to talk about it, explain it, et cetera? Um, so they, the guys did the, the Kickstarter campaign in the fall of 12, and the company was acquired remarkably almost exactly two years to the date uh, later mm. by, by Samsung. Um, so I was in the company during that whole period. And then I actually worked, uh, another year, um, basically for Samsung as we, uh, kind of put the brands together and tried to rebrand the product and release it in outside of the United States. Um, and the, and the product exists today and it's actually gaining popularity. Uh, if you go into any, right. Best Buy, you'll you'll find a pretty big display of smart things, and of course you can buy it on Amazon. And when smart things came up and the opportunity came up, it was really exciting to think about something completely different that I didn't really even understand at the time. And it was also, you know, a kind of a a, a welcome comfort to me to work with someone who I knew and who I thought was a high integrity person. And I thought the role was great for me because really in the beginning, it was as much about brand building and thinking through the architecture of the brand. What did we want this thing to be? Because it was complicated, mm-hmm. right? It was, it, it's a product, it's a platform. We have to talk to developers. We have to explain it to consumers. We have to talk to retailers. There were other B2B partners that were very interested in the capabilities of smart things, including insurance companies, um, unregulated utilities. And so, I felt pretty confident from all my other experiences about building a brand and architecting a brand and then figuring out the channels. I don't really think of myself as a CMO, but I really like talking about brands and I I like dissecting brands and then building brands. And then for the go-to-market piece of it, I think, you know, it's, it's about channels and, you know, relationships and, and, uh, and getting channels off the ground. And for e-commerce, you know, for us at the time, it was about launching our own site, right. including an e-commerce piece, which we built off of what was then called the, the Spree Commerce Platform, sure, which yeah. later got acquired by First Data and now has branched off into something else. And then uh, we also launched with Amazon as a, a full-fledged partner uh, in their home automation store in 2013. It's also interesting to me that, so, you know, that was the big maybe not the beginning, not the earliest days of smart homes, but it was pretty early compared to what's happened since then because now, you know, we have uh, Amazon, Alexa, and, you know, all of these different tools that have 
uh, come about that are really taking it to the next level and making it a lot more accessible, I think, for people to put this stuff in their home compared to, you know, 2012. I feel like the ecosystem has developed a lot. It seems like a lot of times you've been part of things at an early stage when the idea is still getting formed and the people need to understand, like you're, you're educating a lot of people, not just like the consumers, but also partners and, and employees within the company. Like, is that a challenge that you, you relish as what is, what are the keys to like explaining something the right way to, to people at that time? It is a challenge that I like. Um, and I do think it is a sweet spot for me. I I've never been a founder, but I've been early in a lot of times and I think one of the keys is, first of all, understanding it yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't explain anything well if you don't really understand it. Um, and so I had to work hard to really get smart things because that's not something that whole industry, the standards behind it, the way in which the product works, not something that I knew about previously. And so I think working hard and actually studying and trying to practice the narrative. Um, That's something I learned at NPR, by the way, is the value of preparation, the value of a narrative. Um, You only get there with with practice. Even if it's in some kind of negotiation in a one-on-one setting, um, it's... I try to prepare, mm-hmm. right? I mean, for instance, I saw that you, you you had mentioned that you might ask me about the books I'm reading. Uh-huh. And I thought, oh my God, I've read a whole bunch of books lately, but I'm not going to be able to remember any right. of the titles. So I wrote them all down. <laughs> yeah, you know what? I, I, think, I think we may have cut out that question from a handful of interviews because it often goes like that. And it's like the first thing that pops into your head when, when that question is like complete void, uh, for, for a lot of people. It's like, yeah, I've been reading a bunch of books. You've got it right there. Uh, well, um, I, ha- I have one question that we can get to books. What was it like when the ac- acquisition happened? And what, what it, I mean, that must have hit your department pretty, uh, pretty hard in terms of like, you have a community of people you have to explain things to, you have a brand that you need to merge in, you have, you know, all this transitional stuff that occurs. Like, yeah. and, and, and just in general, everything else that happens at a company when, when an acquisition happens. What was that like? Uh, that, that's a great question. The Smart Things was still fairly small when the mm-hmm. ac- acquisition happened. I think we were roughly 50 people. The bigger piece was Smart Things had distinguished itself early on, not only by uh, being early, as you mentioned a moment ago, but also by having what I have to credit the founders with, which is this amazing vision of being an open platform for the smart home. Right. So what does that... Being more neutral, because it, all the other companies have like a vested interest, you know, whether it's Google or Amazon or Apple or whoever right. to, to... Especially especially yeah. Apple. I mean, they, you know, Apple's whole uh, MO is basically operating, only operating within the Apple system. You know, right. Google and Amazon now are, are semi-open, right? But um, smart things from the very beginning positioned itself as the open platform for the smart home. And... I think the founders really understood from the beginning that this idea was only going to work if the technology supported a lot of different standards and also open to other manufacturers kind of plugging into the platform. And the other big piece they understood was that everybody's idea of a smart home would be different. And so 
if you figured out a way to use smart things that was really clever and you created a, a recipe, quote unquote, we didn't call them that, but I'll use that term. If you created a recipe that was really kind of whiz bang to work in your house, well, I as a consumer might be interested in also using that recipe if I knew it existed. Mm-hmm. So for that, we knew it needed to have like an open developer platform where people could access the smart things foundation and create their own recipes and then share them. And so there was always this longer term idea that we'd almost be like the app store for the smart home. So what was hard about the the Samsung acquisition, at least uh, initially, was, you know, what would this uh, vision be embraced? Mm. And I think what has made it, at least theoretically, <laughs> a good combination is that Samsung has embraced that. Um, and even as recently as this year's Consumer Electronics Show, Samsung has continues to talk about openness and continues to talk about um, actually making all Samsung devices and appliances and everything they make that's in the home, which is a lot of stuff, yeah. including washers, dryers, refrigerators, TVs, right. to make them all kind of smart things ready, if you will. Hmm. That was sort of the biggest nugget to think through, and Samsung embraced that. And I think one of the reasons why that worked is because the acquisition came through what Samsung calls um, its um, GIC, Global Innovation uh, Center. But since GIC itself isn't really like an operating unit, their interest was to kind of place a bet that they thought would be a long-term winner. I think it it seems like in the tech world, acquisitions have started to get a little smoother. Oftentimes it felt like things would get acquired and and the, the parent company would try too quickly to sort of change it or, or incorporate it into the main brand. But nowadays it seems like, I think of Instagram in particular having been a very successful transition because, you know, as an independent uh platform, it still seems to have retained a lot of what made it unique early on. And I think those types of things are hard to get right, but there seems to be a pattern emerging that that can be done. <laughs> yeah. Smart things seems like one of them. Yeah, I think I think, you know, smart things is seems to be going in in a good direction. I mean, it's still kind of early days in the right. whole industry, really. I yeah. mean, it's still very early innings. And as you mentioned, I mean, there's been this the addition of the voice assistant as kind of uh, uh, triggering smart home setup and smart home technology is really potentially a game changer. I don't think it is yet, mm-hmm. um, but it is potentially. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, Apple's thing just came out like yeah. two weeks ago, so it's, it's still early days for sure. Well, let's take a look at your list of books. I want to hear what you... Oh, it, I can tell from here that you've really thought this through. So <laughs> what have you been reading lately? Well, it didn't require that much thought. It just required remembering. Well, okay. Okay, so I have been reading a lot lately, and I also like... I enjoy listening to audiobooks. Yeah. Um, so I read and I listen. But I recently read uh, Theft by Finding, which is David mm. Sedaris's diaries from 1977 to 2000 or 2002, maybe. Hilarious. Yeah. So if you're a David Sedaris fan, or even if you're not a David Sedaris fan, it is great writing, uh, provides insight into his early life, which is much more difficult than I realized. And it's just laugh out loud funny. Yeah. Um, I really enjoyed it. And I, it's a great one to listen to on uh, Audible, mm. owned, owned by Amazon, by the way. Um, 
a great one to listen on Audible because he narrates. Sure, yeah. So it's it's wonderful. I'm always looking for for good audiobooks because I find that the uh, the quality of the narrator makes a big big difference. Huge. Yeah. Yeah. Well, another good audiobook is uh, called Exit West, hmm. um, and the author and narrator is uh, Mohsin Hamid is the author. I read this book because um, I, I heard it recommended at a local independent bookstore that I love in D.C., and it, it's sort of about the modern-day refugee story, but it's told in a almost allegoric, almost like an allegory. Hmm. Um, I almost said allegorical, but I wasn't sure if that was a word. So, uh, I think it is allegorical. <laughs> allegorical. Is, a, is, a, is a word. Yeah. Okay. Um, it's a, it's almost told allegorically. allegorically. Yes, I think thank that's you. a word too. I couldn't quite get that off my tongue <laughs> quickly enough. Um, it's really, I just could not turn that off. Mm. I mean, it was a beautiful story, and it really somehow made the experience that we read about and hear about so so real. For fun, I, I, I read Celeste uh, Ng's uh, Little Fires Everywhere. Uh, this is great. Work I, of fiction. Everything you're mentioning, I haven't read or has not been like in the uh, echo chamber that I'm, a, that I'm always a part of. I um, feel like. There's uh, a novel called Less. It's called Less Colon, a novel by Andrew Greer. And I'm not finished with that one yet, but I'm enough way through it. It's very entertaining. It's crisp and humorous, but it's a, about an author who's about to turn 50 and kind of uh, confronting that. It's not, it's not a typical midlife crisis type of thing. It's, it's very humorous. For fun, also, I read uh, Crazy Rich Asians, Kevin Kwan. Uh, I think that's going to be made into a movie. Um, it's pretty funny. <laughs> I want to know how, how how do you find books to read? What is your what kind of reader are you? How how does that work? Um, I I have two actually I have three go to sources for books, and mm. I almost never use anything else. The first one's my mother in law. She's an <laughs> avid reader. She reads like crazy. I think she's part of five book groups, and if she tells me to read something, I read it because she's I, I she's you know served me well. Um, NPR, not surprisingly, mm. uh, has yeah. a great book section now and unbelievable, unbelievably deep and more online than what you hear on the radio. And then I live within walking distance in Washington, D.C. to a bookstore called Politics and Prose, which is an independent bookstore and it's kind of iconic um, yeah. in D.C. It, it hosts a lot of authors, it has a lot of every night there's a reading pretty much. Um, so I'll, I'll be there, you know three, four times a month listening. And I, I pick up a lot of things there. Yeah. I think it's, it's so easy for me. I just get sucked into, uh, there's this app I love called Nuzzle. Do you know Nuzzle? I don't know Nuzzle. Nuzzle is pretty cool. It's a, it's an app that you, um, basically you log into your Twitter and it will look at all the links that people are sharing the, from people that you follow and sort of combine them into like the top hits. Like here's what, 20 of your friends are sharing right now. And so it kind of gives you a, an idea of what the main things people are sharing oh. are from the, from your own network. That sounds um, very useful. It's very useful. However, I, it has the effect of always kind of presenting you whatever everyone is talking about, which is great for kind of staying on top of the news. But I was commenting on Twitter the other day that I want the opposite of that. I want the thing that, tells me what nobody is talking about. Like, show me a weird thing that only one person said, this is amazing. Because I feel like it's so easy to get sucked into 
what everybody else is listening I need to. I to and introduce I, you to my mother-in-law. I want to, yeah, <laughs> please, maybe she should have like a book recommendation service. She should. Yeah. She's, she's read it all. Well, I have two business books. Um, I just started reading, it's an old, old book, but it's called The Smartest Guys in the Room and it tells the story of what happened at Enron. I don't know if you know about Enron. Sure. Started thinking about all of that sort of recently, hmm. uh, just because I've been thinking a lot about integrity and public life, and also because I've been joining boards, and so I've been really wanting to understand companies that that didn't work for different right. reasons. Um, so that's that's a really interesting book so far. I mean, it gets into the backgrounds of the people who joined Enron and where they came from and what their values were and what their personal lives were and their leadership style. So that's been. That's been good to to read. I just finished the uh, biography of John D. Rockefeller, wow. which I started reading because um, the one of the startups that I'm working with uh, now called Remote Year wanted to sort of embrace what's called Rockefeller habits, hmm. and um, I've never heard that. What's what? What are they? It, it, it's basically. I'll, I'll try to say it really quickly. It's it's basically just paying a lot of attention to. Uh, the details of your business and scorecarding your business hmm. in a pretty detailed way, but I, I didn't really know that that you know why was that attrib- attributable to Rockefeller and what was like why did it start to be called Rockefeller Habits? So I wanted to learn about that, and he's the guy behind Standard Oil and was a big oil guy uh, in the in the last century, and it's really instructive to learn about these people because I could talk to you all day long about Jeff Bezos and sort of the respect and admiration that I have for him as a, uh, a founder and a leader and a business icon of our time. But, you know, what will it be like to read about him right. 50, 100 years from now? And so it's interesting to do that for people who lived 100 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> and, and yeah. And I, I mean, I think it's always interesting to look at the past when you think about, you said you're, you're joining boards, um, you have a lot of influence on the direction of companies and you know in that role and so uh, you mentioned integrity as like one of the things that you're i'm i'm assuming you're like trying to bring or trying to understand about companies what are the other things that you've been thinking about what made you want to go into this area of work of <laughs> joining boards it seems like an interesting choice well, first of all, I like that you called it area of work because... Um, it seems like there's a certain number of people who take that yeah, as like, this is a thing that I want to do. It is. And yeah. I, I definitely had this in my mind for a while. I, I, I actually started thinking about this more than 10 years ago. Mm. Um, I think it actually stemmed from a couple different early influences in my life. My my father was a small town lawyer who became a, a judge, and so we as as kids always had sort of this idea instilled in us that service is is really important, um, and that could be civic duty, it could be community service, whatever. But but service back, um, and then you know, fast forwarding to my professional life during the time that I was working at part of the World Bank. One of the things that we were trying to do in the area where I worked was to invest in the private sector in emerging markets. And one of the challenges of investing in the private sector in some emerging markets in the 1990s was that it was really hard to understand what was going on in some of these companies. So how do you know if what you're investing in is actually happening? Mm. Um, Because the standards of governance in some of these places aren't anything close to what we would 
um, expect here. And so I, I became more acutely aware of the importance of good governance, mm-hmm. particularly for publicly traded companies. And so getting back to me being a business person and having this sort of early days of finance, I thought it would be so interesting to take this random walk that I've had um, and apply these experiences, you know, kind of roll them all up into some strategic ideas and strategic lessons that I've learned and try to apply them in service of better governance. Yeah. Um, so that that's kind of where I was coming from and why I continue to try to study uh, what does make good governance. As we start to wind down here, I, I have a question for you that I didn't prepare you for. So I will <laughs> waffle for a while if you need some time to think about this. But you were recommended as a guest by friend of the show who's who was on a previous episode Sarah Hicks uh who is awesome and you can uh talk about her if you'd like but I would like to ask you a question which is who would you recommend uh as a future guest is there anyone that comes to mind that would fit the theme of of well-made oh yeah I I have first of all I would like to say Sarah Hicks is a wonderful person she's a co-founder and CEO of a company here uh, based in Santa Monica called Reaction Commerce there's an earlier episode here on this podcast uh, in which Sarah tells you about that business but um it's a really cool company for anyone listening. It's an open source platform for e-commerce, uh, uh, very modern in its architecture, very uh, real time in its ability to adapt and bring in analytics and marketing. It's very cool. So um, I'm an advisor to yeah. Reaction Commerce and uh, I have a lot of time for Sarah Hicks, who I had hired as VP of product at Etsy. Yeah. So, yeah, I could think of several people who might be interesting for you um, in no particular order. I'll just start naming a couple. Uh, there's a guy who I like a lot uh, who was incredible mind on my NPR team. Uh, his name is Daniel Jacobson. Daniel is basically responsible for just the the all of the core architecture of NPR digital that... Wow. that um, he, you know, very smart, very ahead of the game, and uh, eventually left NPR after I did. And he's been running a portion of uh, uh, engineering at, at Netflix. Hmm. Um, and I think it's really there's int- some similarities there, yes, but at a very yeah. different scale. Yeah, and he's just a really smart guy, uh, especially around APIs and the hmm. importance of APIs. Um, in fact, he's written a book for O'Reilly about that. So. He's a smart guy and kind of a little bit more from the hardcore engineering side of the world. I think there are some um, early Amazonians who could Mm -hmm. be really interesting. Probably too many to name right now, but (laughs) I could certainly provide you a list. Uh, Well, you know, I'm just thinking uh, this could be a new format for how we bring people on the show. Can, you know, do like a chain letter, like in the old days of email. Yeah, that's a great idea. I mean... you sort of end up hearing a lot about the same group of people, you know, mm-hmm. in, in media. You haven't done that. You've had a lot of interesting guests on your podcast. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> but there are all these great people who've, you know, like Sarah and, and others who... Have been there in the trenches have building done this stuff. so many yeah. interesting things. And, you know, let's hear from some of those people. So I'd be very happy to give you a long list of people. Okay. <laughs> well, we'll... we'll, we'll uh... We'll let you, the listeners, know if, mm-hmm. if if people came through from the from the recommendations of 
Maria Thomas. So people <laughs> who can um, who are looking for more of you, what wh- what can they do? They can go find you on uh, um, Twitter. Pretty active on Twitter, um, and my handle is uh, a Greek word, but it's spelled P like Peter, E S like Sam, M O U, and it's Pesmu, and it means tell me. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah, so I'm pretty active on Twitter at Pesmu. Um, I don't really write anything long form uh, other than, you know, what I write on, on Twitter. So that's the primary, the primary place. Awesome. Well, it's been so great to, to hear all of your insights. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Stefan. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, if you got something useful out of it, I would love to hear what that was. Consider writing a short review could be just a sentence long, by going to iTunes and searching for Well Made. I want to hear it all. I want to hear good, bad. I want to hear your constructive criticisms. I am just trying to make this show as useful as possible for you. So tell us what you think. That is the very best way that you can support the show. Thanks, and see you next time.